This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would fall fresh on us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would point our eyes to Jesus, that we would see him, and seeing him, we would love him, and loving him, we would live for him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the most helpful things about Anglican spirituality, at least as far as I'm concerned, is the church calendar. Throughout the year, we remind ourselves of central events in salvation history, like last week, reminding ourselves of Pentecost. And we also remind ourselves throughout the year of core truths of the faith, like we're doing today on Trinity Sunday. And most of us, I think, have an easier time wrapping our minds around God the Father and Jesus the Son, but the Holy Spirit can sometimes remain a bit of a question mark for us. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And to do this, we're going to look at John chapter 16. And in this passage, we find Jesus's most concentrated teaching on the Holy Spirit in all of the Gospels. We're going to work our way through this text together this morning, and we're going to ask three questions. First, we're going to ask, why is the Holy Spirit good news? Second, we're going to ask, what does the Holy Spirit do? And third, we're going to ask, how does the Holy Spirit do it? So first, why is the Holy Spirit good news? Well, to answer this, we need to get a sense of what's going on in this passage in chapter 16. Well, chapter 16 is a part of a series of Jesus' teachings that come right after the Last Supper in John 13 and right before the crucifixion. So you can think of these teachings as Jesus giving his disciples some final instructions to prepare them for the hard road ahead, to keep them from stumbling. And much of what Jesus says in this section of the gospel would have been familiar to the disciples. He says things like, if you make your home with me, you'll be hated by the world. And you'll be hated by the world because the world first hated me. But then he shifts gears and Jesus shares some new news with the disciples things that they don't understand, maybe even can't understand at this point. They don't have a paradigm for what Jesus is saying to them. He tells them that he's going away. And so in verse 6, we see that the mood is a bit gloomy, and it's not hard to understand why. You see, three years ago, all of these disciples who are hearing Jesus speak to them left everything to follow Jesus. They left their jobs, they left their homes, some of them even left family. And now, these ones who left everything hear that Jesus is going to leave them. Dissonance is a good word to describe this scene. Jesus seems excited about something that makes all of the disciples very sad. So what does Jesus know that they don't? Why does he say that it is to your advantage that I go away? He's essentially saying the best thing that could happen to you is that I leave. Why? Well, in verse 7, we see that if Jesus goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus thinks the Holy Spirit is very good news. But why? Why is the Holy Spirit such good news, according to Jesus? Well, the answer to that question has everything to do with who the Holy Spirit is. And in verse 7, Jesus describes the Spirit as the advocate. And in Greek, this word is a rich and a beautiful word. It has loads of different possible translations. And every version of the Bible seems to pick a different one. Ours calls the Spirit the advocate here. Elsewhere, it's comforter or helper or companion or counselor. There's a long list of names for the Spirit. But my favorite is friend or the true friend. And the reason I like this name, the reason why this is my favorite is because it's kind of all-inclusive. All of the other names fit into this one, the true friend. The Spirit is good news for disciples of Jesus because the Spirit is the true friend. And like a true friend, the Spirit reassures us that we are loved, especially when we're feeling alone or feeling ashamed. Like a true friend, the Spirit fights for us when we're in over our heads. He advocates for us. And like a true friend, He encourages us and He empowers us to become more fully human, to become people who love. Like a true friend, the Spirit also challenges us when we're being fools. He convicts us and he corrects us when we're heading on the wrong way. Like a true friend, the Spirit is ever-present, either to comfort us or to give us a kick in the pants, whatever the need may be. And I think presence is the key. It's far better that Jesus go because when the Holy Spirit comes, he makes Jesus more available to us, not less. The Spirit makes Jesus accessible without the limitations of time and space. The Holy Spirit is good news because it means we don't have to track Jesus down, we don't have to wade through a crowd and wait in line to pick Jesus' brain about this or that. If we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The Spirit unlocks all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ Jesus. And so one of the questions that I think we need to ask ourselves this morning is is this. Do we treasure this gift of the Holy Spirit? Or are we more like people who have a billion dollars in our bank account, but still choose to live in poverty? So the first thing Jesus teaches us here is that the Spirit is good news because he provides greater access and greater intimacy with Jesus than we could have ever believed possible. And the second thing that we see in this passage is uh, Jesus teaches us what the Holy Spirit does. And we see that Jesus points out three things in verses 8 through 11. So I want to read that section for us. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, Because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Well, I don't know about you, but this has always been one of the passages that has always felt pretty cryptic to me. It's almost like a dense puzzle. Seems like Jesus is saying something very important, and I wish he would have been a little more clear about what he was saying. What does proving the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment actually mean? Well, I love the way theologian Frederick Dale Bruner interprets this, describes it. It's so helpful to me. He says, this is what it means. 
When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to get the world to reconsider three things. First, what is most wrong in the world? What's the foundational sin? Second, the Holy Spirit gets the world to reconsider what's most right in the world. What's the solution to the deepest sin? And thirdly, the Holy Spirit gets the world to reconsider how the story ends. Who ultimately wins? Is it good or evil? Is it God or the devil? So for the next few minutes, we're going to unpack these three things that the Holy Spirit does. So in verse 9, the first thing we see the Spirit does is get the world to reconsider what's most wrong. And if we were to put our heads together and create a list of the core problems with the world, I imagine we would come up with something like this. Pride, selfishness, greed, idolatry. And I think all of these would be good answers. They would be the answers that I would give. But Jesus would say, I think, that none of these go quite deep enough. In verse 9, Jesus tells us that the fundamental sin, what's most wrong in the world, the biggest problem, is not believing in him, is unbelief. Hmm. I wonder what you make of that. Is unbelief really the problem beneath all of the other problems in the world? Well, if Jesus really is who he says he is, in John 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then refusing to believe in Jesus is, in fact, the foundational sin of the world. I think the spirit of truth gets to the heart of things for us. Jesus is the key to the lock. He's the answer to the question, who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? If Jesus is the way to God, and the way to becoming fully human, if Jesus is the way to navigate reality, then refusing to follow Jesus means that we're choosing to be in the dark, that we're lost, and that we've cut ourselves off from the source of life. And so the Spirit helps the world to see that rejecting Jesus is the subterranean source of all that's off in the world. And in verse 10, we see the flip side of this. And the second thing that the Holy Spirit does is to get the world to reconsider what is really most right. And here Jesus says, I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. And of all the puzzling bits of this dense passage, this one to me feels the most elusive. What does Jesus mean? I think the key to understanding what he's saying here is that the phrase, I'm going to the Father, is a kind of summary. It's shorthand for Jesus's whole life. That describes Jesus's life, going to the Father. The Gospel of John describes Jesus's life as coming down from the Father, think of the incarnation, and the going back to the Father, ultimately in the ascension. Going to the Father captures all that Jesus came to do. We catch a glimpse of this in John chapter 13, which is the scene of the Last Supper. Listen to the language of coming from and going to. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. And during supper, the last supper, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, Jesus got up from the table, he took off his outer robe, and he tied a towel around his waist. And he shows us, he shows the world what righteousness looks like. The Lord of the universe becomes a slave, and he washes filthy feet. This is the pattern of Jesus' life, obedience and humility leading to exaltation. This is what it means to come from God 
and to go back to God. We catch a glimpse of this in the upper room, but we get a full view of it on the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus. Jesus going to the Father is the embodiment of righteousness. His life is what is most right in the world, and his righteousness creates the very possibility for faith. And this is why Jesus adds that little phrase at the end of verse 10, and you will see me no longer. This is a description of faith, trusting even though you cannot see. And with this, we see how the first two things the Spirit does are tied together. Just as unbelief is the foundational sin, so faith is the foundation of righteousness. The Spirit shows the world what is most right in the world by pointing to Jesus, the Holy and the Righteous One, and by pointing to the church, who is made righteous by faith in Jesus. And in verse, three, or verse 11, sorry, we see the third thing that the Holy Spirit does. Briefly, he gets the world to reconsider how the story of human history ends. Now, if we did a quick survey of human history, it can seem like the ruler of this world, the devil, is coming out on top. From chattel slavery to the Holocaust, from abuse in the church to cancer in our bodies, it's easy to see why the world would be tempted to believe that evil will go unpunished and that all of the wrongs will not be made right. But the spirit of the living God testifies that the great trial between good and evil, between God and the devil, is decided at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus. The cross and the empty tomb are God's cosmic shots across the bow. They are a warning to the workers of evil, and they offer hope to those who are tempted to despair. In raising Jesus Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit shows the world that cancer and killing and corruption aren't the end of human history. New creation is. The resurrection is evidence that sin, death, and the devil do not win, but God does. So this is what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes, he'll prove the world wrong about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. And that brings us to our final question, how? How does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, sometimes we make the mistake and assume that the Spirit mostly works in a kind of disembodied way, a thundering voice that puts the world on blast through a cosmic PA system for all to hear. But this isn't how God usually works. As we see throughout the scriptures, God chooses to work through bodies. We see this in the Holy Spirit working through Jesus of Nazareth, the Spirit-filled man. We see this in Pentecost. We talked about this last week. The Spirit drops in an amazing way with tongues of fire, but God doesn't speak by thundering from heaven. He speaks through the mouths of men and women. And I think we also see this in our passage. It's subtle, but it's very clearly implied in verse 8 in the phrase, when the Holy Spirit comes. So when the Holy Spirit comes, who is he coming to? Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't come directly to the world. The Father sends the Spirit to the followers of Jesus. The Spirit comes to the church. And so this is what Jesus is saying in verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, my followers, 
he will prove the world wrong through you. The implications of this are huge. This means that the way the Spirit accomplishes his work is through the church, not in some disembodied way, but through the body of Christ, the church. The church doesn't just sit on the sidelines as we watch the Holy Spirit do his thing. We're not spectators. But I want to be really clear. The call before us is not something like loving Jesus and trying harder, as if the Holy Spirit's work totally depended on us. Instead, the call is to be open to the Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can then work through us. The call is to an openness. And I want to give you an analogy to explain how I think all of this fits together. Last weekend, we weren't here at church. We were back home in Annapolis. And I had some time to spend on the water, so I kind of have sailboats on my mind. So it's a sailboat analogy. How do sailboats fly through the water? Well, they don't move forward by themselves. They move forward in the water because they're carried by the wind. They move through the synergy between open sails and the force of powerful wind. This is how the boat does what it was designed to do. It doesn't move itself. So it is with the church. We don't drive ourselves forward. We move when we're open to the power of the Spirit, and then we go where he sends us. So here's what this means. If we are to do what God created us to do as the church, as his Spirit-filled people, if we're going to participate in God's mission in the world, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And not just once, but constantly. We are invited to walk in step with the Spirit. And there's not really a formula for how to do this. We need to be open. We need to be expectant. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, we need to be obedient. And when we're open to the Spirit, what we'll see is the truth about Jesus will get fleshed out in our life together among us, in how we love God and how we worship Jesus in how we love one another, and in how we love the lost and the last and the least in this world. When we're open, the Spirit will equip us. He will empower us to put the love of God on display for the hostile and hungry world to see. This is how the Holy Spirit proves the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. When Jesus leaves, this is how he continues his mission through us, the Spirit-filled church. And so the question before each of us this morning, the question I want all of us to ask and to answer is this. Are we open to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and through us? Will we allow ourselves to be filled by the Spirit for the sake of the world? Will we let the Spirit take us where he wants us to go? Will we trust our truest friend? Let's pray. Living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we know that you are a God who speaks, that you are not a God who remains silent. Help each of us to hear your voice this morning, whatever it is that you're saying to us. I pray that we would each be open to the comfort, to the correction, to the conviction of you, our true friend. Fill us afresh this morning 
Teach us how to walk in step with your spirit and grow in us the faith to go where you send us. Amen.